guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. We have a scandalous episode scandalous. for you guys. Scandalous. Scandalous. Yes. It's not fun. It's scandalous. This is this is part two. Well, it could be fun too, I suppose. We shouldn't say it's not fun. Everybody's <laughs> don't listen. turn their radios off. Well, I don't think they're listening on the radio. Well, they might be. Okay, maybe. Maybe. They're on the ra- they're in their car. It's on the radio, the Bluetooth. You still call it a radio. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. do you call it? And you're in you're in your car stereo. and you turn it on. It's a car stereo. Radio is definitely broadcast over the radio. Stereo just means to split hairs. Stereo just to split hairs. Stereo Stereo means just coming in through stereo instead of mono. I know. That's correct. Yeah. Whatever. Okay. Regardless, this is our scandal part two. This is a scandal. This is a scandal that it's not called a radio in the car. What kind of radio does it have? Even when you go on the come on, does the every car still has an AM/FM radio on it? Right. It says on the when you go to buy a car on the buy sheet the the why do they still have AM radios? AM FM radio because lots of people still listen to the radio. Yeah, I suppose they do. My C10 only has an AM radio. Yeah, it works. So great. it doesn't have a stereo. It doesn't have a stereo or an AM FM radio. It's just a right. radio in mono. Right. Anyway, moving on <laughs> to part two of the most scandalous. Car things ever. The car things, yeah. It's automotive scandals. We're doing deep dives into some crazy scandals in the automotive industry. This is part two. There will be a part three, Chris, and we'll cap it off there. Sounds good. Last week, we talked about Dieselgate and also Tucker Automotive. That guy got so screwed. Yes, I was thinking did. about it more and more. Man, that yeah. guy got steamrolled. Yes, Bulldoze. There was a lot of, besides just the SEC, there was a lot of like, maybe the other big three were kind of lobbying and pushing the oh, SEC sure. to yep. like take this guy down. Yep. That's and called crony capitalism, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So I have a question about Tucker. If you know, if you don't, it's okay. Okay. How long after this happened did he die? Ooh, that I'm not sure of. Because I'm, I mean, that's just one of those things where you just, it's such a crushing blow in your life yeah. that it's tough to recover from. No, he did go on to do something else, I think. And someone else pointed out to me that they made a movie, which I knew, but didn't include it at any point. But yeah, Jeff Bridges was the star of this movie they made about this. Of this well. guy just getting absolutely just bent, getting just hammered. bent over. Yeah. Exactly. So I want to start out this episode with a question to pose to you, Chris. Okay. How would you describe American cars in the 50s and 60s? Uh, I would call them voluptuous. I okay, exactly. Is that the right word? I I wrote down big. Oh, yes. well, yeah, we're yeah. getting at voluptuous. They're, they're big cars. Here's the difference, though. Do you want a big girl <laughs> or do you want a voluptuous girl? Tell me which one you want. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, and it makes sense because unlike European countries or Japan, the U.S was comprised of vast, sprawling interstates. We have massive parking lots and wide downtown boulevards. The idea of a compact car was a foreign one. It's just not necessary. Yes. So one of the first mainstream compact cars that was ever imported to the U.S. was Volkswagen's Beetle, first imported in 1949. However, and only owned by hippies and serial killers. Well, just listen to this. So they first imported it at the end, granted, of 1949, but 1949 was right after World War II. Right. It's fresh on can the mind you, of can, Americans. Can you imagine? And Volkswagen was quite obviously a product of the Nazis. Can you imagine buying one and no, driving around and no your neighbors did. and your neighbors just be no like. No one imagined buying one. Supposedly, they only sold two. Wow. By the end of 1949. Now, I don't know if they like officially started selling them in like December 28th of 1949, sure. but I love that I they read they only sold two that first year. I can't However, imagine just the, the keeping up with the Joneses thing. 
where you buy a Beal and the guy goes, well, I never have to buy another car again because that guy's a Nazi. Yes. <laughs> uh, regardless, the tide of opinion obviously changed. And when its run ended here in 1979, more than 5 million Beatles had been sold on American soil, which in fact, uh, it topped, its 20 million sales topped that of the Model T, which was the former sales record right. at 15 Well, they still made this, this stupid car in Mexico until just <laughs> this recently. This stupid car. Well, I mean, come on. They're still making this thing with air conditioning <laughs> and fuel injection and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, it's awesome. I guess they just they don't have crash standards in Mexico. They don't care if you get ejected through a plate glass window. True. It's interesting you break up uh, crash standards here, Chris. <laughs> just stay tuned for the whole rest of this episode. <laughs> so the Beetle uh, well, is kind of what started. I thought it was going to be something exploding, like an air like the Takata airbag scandal, which is kind of boring. It was. I started to look into Takata. Some dude, some dude was like rolling the biggest thing of bubble wrap you've ever seen. It was, just, <laughs> it was as big as a man. It was huge. Industrial just it. roll of bubble wrap. And I go, what if you could pop all the bubble wrap all at once? <laughs> That's the stupidest <laughs> question, but, but yes. But you're wondering, like, what, <laughs> yes. what, would it be like, broom, or would it be boom? You know, you just wonder what it would sound like. And then you go, well... Boy, that really ties into our episode today. I go, well, it must be the Takata airbags that were exploding in people's faces no, and killing people. No, other, but it's, other things exploding. But it's not that. No, way. because as you, yeah, I could have dwelt on Takata. I'm not going to just because there was a whole bunch of airbags that were bad. Yeah, big deal. Right. Okay, so. You ever uh, take an airbag and blow it up out of the car? I've never done that. Oh, it's fun. I've always just, wanted to. You just, just what, hook up. What to, movie is that where they put them under each other's seats and explode them? Oh, my God. What are they? <laughs> you, that would almost it's, kill you. It's a comedy. You. Like, it's not real. They are violent. Yes. But they go like 20, 30 feet in the air and they go, Oh, boom, so you put them face down. down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's there's videos of you on YouTube of people sitting on them yeah. and then ejecting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. what I yeah. think it was something stupid like the Zac Efron movie with the the guy with the with the with the every Zac Efron movie ever. That's stupid. Got and it. The guy right. who. Anyways. Nope. You're done. You can't give up. <laughs> you're out of time. <laughs> By the <laughs> late 1960s, America saw a slew of import compact cars, and they were catching on. By 1967, Datsun had sold 100,000 cars in the United States. The following year, sales topped 50,000. Honda entered the market in 1969 with the tiny N600. It boasted a 45-horsepower engine and a price tag of 1000 $275. What was the, what do you think the mentality was of dudes driving around? I mean, the Honda N600 is cool. It's a rad looking it's car. It's super, super cool. How many did they sell? Uh, Does it say? I didn't say how many they sold, but it had 45 horsepower and only $1,275 in 1969. I would love to own one of those. I but would can you too. imagine? It's, it's almost like buying a smart car today. Just right. how absurd a smart it just car looks. It doesn't make sense. They just don't, they visually don't make sense as they're driving around. fuel economy either. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mazda, then called Toyo Koigyo, arrives in 1970. So these cars are coming along. And before we get any further, though, let's take a moment to talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all the greatest and latest sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the coolest stuff 
that's in the automotive industry. And what I love is they're starting to curate the boxes now. So if you're into American iron, domestic stuff, they'll send you that. If you're into European cars, they're we're going to get 10 millimeter sockets. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, JDM stuff as well. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first order. So this N600 had a little, the thing could rev out to 9,000 RPMs. Are you serious? Yeah, it's uh, top speed of this uh, was uh, 80 miles per hour. See, that thing's rad. It is awesome. I, I have a feeling you can't get them anymore. No, I'm guessing they probably I bet they're on bring a trailer. No, my point is, if you can get them, I bet they're very expensive yes, and collector. You check that out. In the meantime, it was becoming clear that compact cars were actually selling in the U.S. and that the big three should get in on the market. However. Oh! What? 10 grand, 12 grand. Here's one. On bring a trailer? No even? reserve. 1972 Honda N600 Project, 1600 bucks. Really? These are well. They made a pickup truck, Jake. Really? Oh my God! It's the cutest oh, thing in the world. Okay. Oh boy. Well, we Here need, we now go. We need one of those. Here we go. Who needs got, a moped I when got, you got this I thing? Sell the M5 immediately. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Continue. So, I sent you a picture of the truck. Thank you. Can you look really yeah. fast? What, right now? Yeah, okay. Looks I'm, like, I'm looking. Look how cute it is. It looks like it's straight out of Toy Story. Whoa! Yes. It's boxy! Oh, it's cute. That is pretty great. It, honestly, these things look a little bit like a mini. Yeah, they do, actually. Yeah, they You're right. Same kind of proportions. Better looking. I really? Would I would argue. You don't like the mini? I did not say that. You don't do like not, how the mini looks. Do not send Chris hate mail. Chris Cluel thinks the original <laughs> mini, the most classic, iconic design in automotive history, is Whoa. ugly. First of all. That is exactly what you just said. I said that just as much as you said that that's the best looking car of all time. No, I just said it's very classic. You said I, the I, most no, I said iconic. You said the I would most say it's iconic. One of the most iconic. Oh boy. Anyway, let's continue on to things exploding. Regardless. <laughs> so the big three are thinking, hey, we should get in on the market, right? Yeah. Ford, Chrysler. I'm, I'm, why did I just forget who the big three was? <laughs> Ford, GM, yeah. and Chevrolet. No! <laughs> Chrysler. Ford, GM, and Chrysler. Yes, exactly. Otherwise known as Stellantis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they're in the ocean. Uh, however, the thought stirred up quite the internal controversy at Ford. Bunky Knutson, then president. <laughs> no, I know. Oh, man. Bunky is his name. Bunky Knutson was the president of I wonder at what Ford. the song of Someone wrote a song about him. Oh, I'm sure those guys yeah. that hated Bunky had plenty <laughs> of songs about Bunky. Uh, he said, in effect, let them have their damn small car market. Ford makes good money on medium and large models. But as it would turn out, he lost the battle and later resigned. Lee Iacocca became the president and immediately began a program to Man, produce. that guy was everywhere, yes, wasn't he? he was. He immediately began a program to produce the company's own compact car. Iacocca argued that Volkswagen and the Japanese were going to capture the entire American subcompact market unless Ford put out its own alternative. And he was right. I mean, he was for statement. sure. And like the Mustang. He was very rarely ever wrong, Lee Iacocca. Yeah. I mean, maybe a little bit this time. I mean, time, I, we only know about, like, the three things he worked on that he got right. Well, I suppose that's probably true, but the minivan thing was a pretty big deal, right? Save Chrysler. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I forgot he did that, too. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a pretty... I mean, he's a pretty big dude. Yeah, he is. And uh, as I was saying, like the Mustang, this new project became known as... in turn the company as the Lee's car, right? The what? 
Oh, Lee's car. Got right. It. Lee Iacocca. Oh, For some reason, is... I immediately went to jeans. I don't know why. <laughs> well, yes. Did you know, speaking of which, there was a Levi's. You're wearing Lee jeans right now? No, I'm wearing fancy jeans. Um, did you know there was a Levi's edition AMC Gremlin? It was all denim blue interior. It oh, actually no. had Levi's denim as the upholstery. Wow. I'm yeah. really, really impressed. I bet it wore really well. I, I wonder if you got any you holes. Got cool, like... I wonder if you got holes in the seats if it looked better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lee wanted the little car in showrooms of America with the 1971 models. So he ordered his engineers and vice president Bob Alexander to oversee what was probably the shortest production planning period in modern automotive history. The normal time span from conception to production of a new car is about 43 months, or I should say at the time was 43 months. Now it's much longer, but the schedule for this- Or shorter, as we learned on Friday. actually. They did the Homer in nine months, six to nine months. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The schedule for this entirely new model, however, was just under 25 months in 1970. It already sounds sad. Just born. All right, hold on a second. <laughs> what? Did he just say the Pinto was born? <laughs> yes. This music sounds like a calf was about to be born in a barn. Well, yeah, that's it. The Pinto is a horse. Oh, my God, you're right. You didn't get it? I, I get it get now. Get it? Is the Mustang, yeah, and but, this is the Pinto, the oh, little horse. Oh, it's so pathetic. <laughs> the music. All right, hold on. We'll play it again. <laughs> It already sounds like a scandal. It, die, it already sounds like, oh my God, somebody's about to die. It's kind of like this minor chord, yeah, major chord yeah. situation going on. <laughs> and of course, you start it over again. Meet the Pinto, just born. The new little carefree car from Ford. Carefree. Priced like a small economy import, but you'd never know to look at it. It's averaged over 25 miles per gallon in simulated city and suburban driving. But it's frisky, with a wider stance than any import, so you won't be pushed around by the wind. With high back bucket seats in front and comfortable room all around. And Pinto Strong, built to run and run and run. With little servicing, little noise, little expense. Pinto, a little carefree car to put a little kick in your life. Ooh, yeah, I see what you did there. So September 11th. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's when they released it. Not a good day. Oh, no. No, no. no, no. Don't release anything on September 11th. No. So <laughs> this thing was frisky. Yeah. And it won't get pushed around by the wind. Like those imports. Yeah. They said. Like those imports. But I also imagine they're not getting pushed around by a guy in his like 67 Chevelle either. Yeah. So, what they're after there. Yeah. Uh, so the Pinto was initially a major success. It sold 328,275 units in its first year. 
So Americans obviously liked the idea of compact cars, but keep in mind, this was still a time when any imported vehicle was still simply called a foreign car, right? So when Ford came out with their own homegrown compact with the Pinto... It said imported from Detroit. <laughs> no, no, that, <laughs> oh, that was later. That yeah, was yeah, later, yeah. okay. No, but Americans were like, oh, good, we have an, a, an American alternative. And it was perfect timing. Just three years after its release, the world witnessed the 1973 oil crisis. The oil embargo of 1973 was basically the gas gas crunch. Yeah, these the gas prices were went up a lot. I think gas prices in 1971, the average price was 36 cents. Wow. When the Arabs turned the spigot off, and basically because we were supporting Israel, they wanted to show support for Palestine, whatever. That's a whole other story. But it went up 55 cents per gallon. That's a lot. So in today's dollars, that's like $1.67 for gas. Boy, I guess the taxes have probably gone up. <laughs> I, 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 I wonder why. Uh, but that would be almost like the gas would be... Well, more than double. Yeah, so we would be Or more, no, a triple. Uh, no. Almost triple. Almost triple. We're awesome at math. Yeah. This is really, really good. <laughs> yeah, baby. No, it would be like $5 a gallon or right. so. Like, it's a lot. It's what a is lot. gas right now? I'd never pay attention. I don't know. I try not to look. <laughs> We are the worst people to comment on this ever. (laughs) All right, so the Pinto was the perfect vehicle for the times. After all, it could travel more than twice as far on a gallon of gas than most of the massive land yachts of the time. But, as I'm sure you can guess, there was a problem. Yes, there was. In 1972, a woman pulled onto a Minneapolis highway in her brand new Ford Pinto, riding with her... Right on 94. Yep. Riding with her was I don't know if that's her, true. <laughs> this is a somber story. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, go ahead. She was riding with her son. As she merged into traffic, her car stalled. Now, the reason the car stalled isn't known, and that wasn't the issue. However, as the Pinto slowed, another car rear-ended hers at an impact speed of 28 miles per hour. That's pretty, I mean, 28 miles an hour to zero is pretty serious. Yeah, the Pinto's gas tank immediately ruptured, dousing the entire inside of the car in fuel. Whoa, 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 whoa. Vapors from it mixed quickly with the air in the passenger compartment. The impact from the relatively minor impact did two more things. First, the unibody chassis compressed in a way that wedged its doors shut. Secondly, metal components of the car dragged along the roadway, creating a shower of sparks. The car exploded in a ball of fire with both mother and son trapped inside. Oh, no. Neither passenger died immediately. The mother, writhing in agony, died a few hours later in an emergency bedroom. Not a good look for Ford. Her son, 13-year-old Robbie Carlton, survived going through numerous futile operations aimed at grafting a new ear and nose from skin on the few unscarred portions of his badly burned body. We went from frisky to disastrous pretty quick. Yes, we did. And this gruesome account is unfortunately real. The details were taken straight from police reports. And it was far from the only instance of such an accident. So, Chris, I want you to watch. Can you you tell me the, I just want to know where the gas tank is, how this is possible. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I'm gonna, I am going to get into that in a minute here. Um, I want you to watch this video that I sent you. It's right, crash plan. test footage from the 70s, and there isn't any audio, so I want you to describe what you're seeing. Okay, I'm seeing an, uh looks like some sort of Cadillac and pushing, oh, oh no. It's basically showing a giant Cadillac pounding into a, a Pinto. 
yeah. basically is what's going on here, and it's immediately on fire. Immediately. In rear-end collision testing, with speeds over 25 miles per hour, the fuel tank ruptured on every single impact. Did they not do any crash testing at all? And here's the guy, he can barely get in the door, he can't get in the door, and everybody's crammed up against the, the steering wheel, the whole car has collapsed. It's, it's awful to look at. Yes. So it sprays fuel everywhere. It sprays it everywhere. So here's what happened. It's you ever see a water balloon pop in slow motion? Yeah. That's what it looks like. It's like yeah. a water balloon popped and it just sprays gas all over the place. It's terrible. So in rear end collisions, the fuel filler neck could separate and puncture the fuel tank, spraying fuel into the passenger compartment and igniting. Moreover, the fuel tank was located not, not above the rear axle as is normally designed. They simply didn't have space for it, so they put it at the rear of the car. Now, there was traditionally a bumper there, right. but because the Pinto was made to be very cheap, it was basically just thin sheet metal. That was the only thing basically between an impact and the fuel tank, which again, as said, sheared its neck off and basically put fuel everywhere. When in I'm any trying to figure out. Okay, so collision. there's no there's no firewall apparently. No, there's nothing. Well, there's a there's a floor pan, but I don't know how it sprays into. Yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how the gas is getting from the externally mounted gas tank right into, into the, the car cabin. into the cabin. I think of the it's car. because it crumples the very kind of thin unibody chassis, yep. and as it does that, somehow maybe there's the a rip. seam there, right, and it just sprays it right in. It's horrifying. I mean, I'll, I'll link this video in the show notes so you guys can take a look, but it is, I can't just, the, the gas exploding like that. I mean, if you have a full tank, that's 12, 14 gallons of fuel just instantly everywhere. Yeah, and they said in every crash test they did like that, it exploded. There's no way to not have it explode. If you're hitting from behind at 25 miles an hour, it exploded. Wow. They it, sold 12 million of these things? Mm -hmm. <gasps> and here's the worst part, Chris. In an expose in Mother Jones in 1977, it was revealed that Ford had known about the defect years before the car even went into production. Ford ran a cost-benefit analysis on the matter and found it would be cheaper to pay off the possible lawsuits of crash victims in an out-of-court settlement. The Pinto Memo which contains these calculations, was circulated among Ford's senior management in 1968, two years before the Pinto hit streets and caused the deaths. Unfortunately for Ford, the memo was leaked to Mother Jones, the independent San Francisco magazine known for investigative reporting. Buried on the seventh page of the memo was a table of cost calculations entitled Fatalities Associated with Crash-Induced Fuel Leakage and Fires. And here's what the figures stated. This is straight from the document. Expected cost of producing the Pinto with fuel tank modifications. Expected unit sales of 11 million vehicles. Includes utility vehicles built on the same chassis. Modification cost per unit. So the cost of fixing a single one, $11. To make it not do this. Correct. To make it not explode and kill people. $11. $11. Times 11 million vehicles they projected to sell would be a total cost of one hundred twenty one million dollars right then on the other side of the table expected costs of producing the pinto without fuel tank modifications then expected accident results assuming 2100 accidents which they broke down as follows there will be 180 burn deaths there will be 180 serious burn injuries and there will be 2100 burned out vehicles 
The unit costs of accident results, assuming out-of-court settlements associated to each of these, they figured they would pay each burn death $200,000. They figured they would pay each serious burn injury $67,000. And each vehicle burnt out, in addition to the insurance settlement, they'd pay an additional $700. Therefore, the total cost of not fixing it, in their mind, was $49 million. Okay, here's, here's the thing. We do this... Every single day. It's risk. It's, it's, when you break it down like this, it seems horrible. Yes. All right. It seems horrible. We've done this with the coronavirus, for example, right? If we all stayed locked in our houses forever, nobody would get the coronavirus. Nobody would die. But there's mitigating things. You want to live. You want to have your life. We, we gauge risk every single day. Right. There's, there's intersections. There's an, let's say there's an intersection at a road. Okay. Right. And this is, I know this because I ended up dealing with this with the Minnesota Department of Transportation. There was a very dangerous intersection by my road. People were getting in accidents and dying all the time. Okay. When I called him, there is a specific number that they will ascribe to a death. I don't remember what it was, but they, there's a value number ascribed yeah. to that death at that intersection. And they won't do anything until that number reaches a certain threshold. Wow. And you have to do this because otherwise you would just say- You can't quantify it otherwise. We will make every intersection as safe as possible all the time, which means if it's going to be on a busy road, which means you have a cloverleaf. Right. And you can't put a cloverleaf at every single intersection. It's not cost effective. It just isn't. And I'm not trying to be callous here, but this type of stuff goes on all the time. Are you able to show me that someone didn't care that it was a heartless action or was this just an actuarial decision? I mean, this is obviously this is grossly neg- negligent. It's, it should have it's been unethical, I think is the biggest issue. Is it? Is it unethical or is it actuarial? Because you can't, we can't make, if this was the case, everybody would just look at what Volvo does and goes, well, we're just going to design exactly that. This is the safest thing that you could possibly do. Right. When, Mer- when Mercedes started putting airbags and everything. Obviously, it's better to have not just a steering wheel airbag, but an airbag for the passenger, side curtain airbags, all these different things, but not every car had those. Okay, so why? Why didn't every car have those? Because the cost of the car would be so much higher that nobody would buy them or they didn't want to get sued, whatever the case may be. This happens all the time. You're right. I just just don't know if $11 was the right calculation. $11 $11 for inflation, we want to say it's probably $150 per car. Right. It's not very much money. No, it's not. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to give some sort of- I know, you're of, right. It's, I'm glad you're, you're, yeah. I'm just trying to say that this actual decisions happens all the time, every <clears throat> single day. Everybody assesses risk on a daily basis. And this, however, is horrifying to watch. Okay, right. so it's a, it's a very- bad outcome for actuarial science this is a very bad outcome right when you look at this you're just like horrified by it yes and there will be so there's there's three scandals in this episode okay this is the first of three and they all have a very common theme Uh uh-huh so well keep that in mind with my with my disclaimer in mind that actuarial science will always exist the manufacturers are still doing this exact thing. I'm sure you're right. The, the reports are probably encrypted in a vault somewhere, <laughs> but they're doing exactly the same thing. They're just not getting leaked to Mother Jones after. I mean, there's probably something if you look up the Takata airbags that there's somebody new or somebody you knew something that there might be a defect at the airbag company, blah, 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 blah. They just, it's what they do. 
they take the risk all the time. And sometimes it doesn't work out very well. Yeah, well, in this case, the Pinto went into production in 1970 without the safety modification, and they knew full well that deaths would be caused by it. After several accounts of Pinto fires coming to light, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration started an investigation. After four years of research into the cause of vehicle fires, the NHTSA discovered that, quote, during that time, nearly 9,000 people burned to death in flaming wrecks. Of Pintos. 9,000. Tens of that's thousands. More than a, that's more than 180. Yes, exactly. Their calculation was wrong. Tens of thousands more were badly burned and scarred for life. And the four-year-old de- or the four-year delay meant that over 10 million new unsafe vehicles went on the road since they started the basically investigation. Didn't people go, "Oh, you shouldn't buy one of those." Yeah, there was that starting, but it hadn't been anything official. This isn't the internet. Right? This exactly. isn't where it just goes up on motherjones.com exactly. and goes viral on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere else where if there's a flaming car, it takes time. Yes. This led then for the NHTSA to introduce rear impact safety regulations in 1976. Ford complied with the standards on their new 1977 Pinto model. Too late. However, the NHTSA also officially announced that a safety defect existed in the fuel systems of all Pintos manufactured between 1971 and 1976, and Ford was forced to recall and repair 1.5 million cars. At the cost of? Ford. Oh, yes. Uh, Much, much more than their calculations. Yes. Yeah, their analysis was grossly wrong. What followed was a landmark legal battle. You see, prior to 1978, Ford had only been sued for monetary damages associated with the issue. However, in August of 1978, three teenage girls were driving a Pinto down a highway in rural Indiana. Suddenly, they heard a clunk and saw the gas camp had rolled off from the roof of the car in the middle of the road. The young girl driving realized they had forgotten to screw the cap back on after fueling up. She pulled to the side of the road and stopped the car to retrieve it. However, Moments later, a van, whose driver was distracted as he searched for a fallen cigarette, hit the stopped Pinto while traveling at 50 miles an hour. Oh, no. The Pinto burst into flames immediately, and all three teenage girls were burnt to death. The Indiana state prosecutor charged the Ford Motor Company with criminal reckless and reckless homicide. This was the first time a corporation had ever been charged with criminal homicide. The entire country was watching the case closely. Not only were Americans disgusted with Ford's callousness, but the outcome of the case would set a precedent for the liability of corporations nationwide. If you can charge a company, not a person, a company with homicide, it kind of rewrites what is a company? standard. What is a company? It's, well, just, it's a collection it's of a people. Legal, it's a legal entity of people. It's just right. a, a paper that says people are doing You can't, this. like, jail a company, though. So it would have to be different, obviously. Yeah, punitive. but it still, still represents people, and I exactly. think sometimes people forget that. On March 13, 1980, the jury returned from deliberation, finding Ford Motor Company not guilty on all three counts. The prosecution argued that Ford had already notified the public of the issue, having issued the recall prior to the date of the accident. But do you see the irony in this argument, Chris? Had the NHTSA not forced Ford's hand in recalling the cars, they could have been found guilty. 
Not only that, the defense had also called several Ford engineers to the stand who testified they all bought Pintos for their own families, and their wives and children drove them every day, showing their confidence in the safety of yeah, their own the, car. The doctor says cigarettes actually improve your health. Exactly. In reality, the main reason Ford won the case was because the impact happened at 50 miles an hour. You see, even the NHTSA's newly developed rear impact standards didn't require fuel tanks to withstand crashes at that speed. So you're saying no matter what happened, they were dead. Kind of. Yeah. yeah. Which is probably true. Probably, especially at that time. Today, it's you would be you more could, or less... You, you could survive. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, even though Ford won that landmark legal battle, they had lost their reputation with consumers. All said, as many as 900 people died as a result of the Pinto's flawed design. So you would think then that after such a public humiliation and loss of consumer trust, Ford be sure to be forthright with safety concerns and tread lightly and really yeah. be on the straight and narrow. Absolutely. They, they'd have to. Yep. <laughs> what happened? Well, that same year of the Pinto trial, Ford again makes our list. So let me set the stage for you here, Chris. Okay. It's 1970 what? Three? Eight. Okay. <laughs> it's 1978. I had to check. You're driving your new 1978 Ford home from work one afternoon and notice oh, your kids forgot to bring the trash can in. And you're thinking, in. you're going, thank God I didn't buy one of those Pintos. Not the damn Pinto. Yeah, yeah you're I, you're in an F-150 or something. Did they yeah. have the F-150 in 78? I think it would have been F-100. They changed that at some point. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, you're in your Ford truck. It's 1978. You come home from work, and you notice, oh, your kids left the trash can at the end of the driveway. Again. Again. Grounded. So you throw your car into park and walk around to the back of it to grab the trash can. And as you look up, you're crunching gravel, and your Ford is backing into you. It's the last thing you see as the car pins you on the ground, crushing you to death. This is exactly the scene that happened numerous times. The frequent nature of these incidents, incidents prompted the NHTSA to launch an in-depth three-year-long investigation. What it found was that Ford automatic transmissions built between 1966 and 1980 contained a defect where they could simply slip from park into reverse. Oh, good. Causing them to roll unexpectedly. Even more damning, however, was the report that the company had known about the defect since its manufacturing. So they didn't... This sounds like deja vu, Chris. They learned nothing. Nothing. It Again... Was, it's all actuarial tables. That's what they that's what they depend on. That's what they're going to look at every single time. And again, it was Mother Jones magazine and the Detroit Free Press that uncovered Ford had been aware of the defects since 1972 but rejected the design improvement that would have cost the company, get this, 3 cents per car. Oh, come on. That's just no. Instead, the company chose to quietly pay $20 million to victims and their families by not saying a word. Just some guy shows up with a briefcase full of money? Yep. Wow. After finding that the defect was- $20 million? Yeah. In 1978? That's how much was across like 700 oh, accidents. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That's their Still. total. So that's $3 million, $2.8 million per family. It's a lot of money. Yeah. After finding that the defect was the cause of 777 accidents, including 259 injuries and 23 deaths, the NHTSA was on the verge of issuing a 23 million car recall, a move that would have bankrupted Ford. 
1981, company executives pleaded poverty to the Reagan administration. Does too big to fail ring a bell? Always. The result was one of the most ridiculous solutions to a vehicle design flaw I've ever heard of, Chris. Ford would mail out 23 million stickers and instruct owners to put them on the dashboard. The five and a half by one and a quarter inch black on silver decal read the following. Important safety precaution. Before leaving the driver's seat, you should always, one, make sure the gear selector level is engaged in park. Two, set the parking brake fully. And three, shut off the ignition. That's it. That was it. And they made 23 million of these stickers and sent them out. Now, there was no instruction on where specifically to put it. They just said, put this on your dashboard. Now we've washed our hands of it. So what's funny is if you go around junkyards or see old cars from, you know, the 70s Fords, you'll sometimes see this sticker on there. Oh, that would actually be really cool to see. Yeah. Uh, It was enough for Ford to successfully dodge what would have been the largest recall in history but it came at a cost of more lives lost. You see, a sticker doesn't prevent it. The, uh, I'm sure that the Union Auto Workers mob had a lot to do with this, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were probably lobbying pretty hard. They would have been out of jobs. Yeah, yeah, big time. By 1984, it was reported that the official death toll from the dangerous transmissions had ridden to 77. Mm. Before we go to our final story, let's it's far take- shy of the Pinto. Yeah, yeah it is. Yes, but I just I had to transition to that one because it was Ford again the same damn year. I wonder if we're going to see some sort of stuff like this when the the autonomous stuff becomes more yeah. and more prevalent. Yeah. Like that lady that got ran over by the bike or she yes. was riding her bike and she got hit by the Volvo. Right. The problem is that's all in code and there's documentation and there's video surveillance of all of it. So it's, mm. I don't know. Still, It'll gonna, come out differently. Still could be, it could be some expensive recalls, that's for sure. I'm sure it would. Uh, let's take a minute to talk about Oberk Car Care before we go any further. Oberk Car Care is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that's research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are guys that are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they are truly great products. It's a simple solution and it works on all vehicle paints from your 1978 Ford Pinto all the way <laughs> to your 2000 BMW M5. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code over Chris. 20% Chris. That's usually better than any sale you see. Sales are usually like, ah, 10% off. This is a fifth. The discount code is good not only on obertcarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Go check them out today. Okay, Chris, our last scandal for today's episode is thankfully not about Ford. Is is anybody going to die in this one? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The Chevy Cobalt. Was for all intents and purposes a failure. A failure. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yep. I'm going to leave that one in there so everybody knows what you do okay. when you mess up. <laughs> uh, it was a fairly mediocre and forgettable car. However, it may go down in history alongside the Ford Pinto as one of the, quote, most recklessly built and dangerous cars ever sold. Two 16 uh, year old girls in North. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah I that, know. It's, it's, it's almost as like a, you think Pontiac Grand Am, Chevy Beretta, Cobalt. These are all Cavalier. The, the Cavalier, Cavalier yeah, which Cavalier. was the predecessor to the. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a high school gar- girl car. Yeah, yeah 100%. Um, or the Pontiac Sunfire. Oh, oh well, that's, in, that goes in right yellow, with the Cavalier. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like it. Uh, so, anyways, while that may seem a bit hyperbolic, let's give a quick rundown of the car's timeline. 
The Cobalt was introduced in 2004 for the 2005 model year. Only two years later, in 2007, Chevy recalled 98,000 of the cars. Why? They failed to meet federal safety standards. Oops. Chris, how on earth does a major auto manufacturer standard? Standard produce a car? Listen, okay, but first, how do you fail to... To meet, to, make the, to meet the standard that, uh, that has been preset for you. Exactly. what you're saying, yes. Apparently, What's the, the standard? base model's trim was so cheap and hard that it would result in head injuries when in a collision. Which is very likely to happen when you're a 16-year-old girl. You're yes. likely to run into yeah. things. GM claimed it only affected motorists not wearing a seatbelt, so it wasn't in okay. adverse to you know the actual regulation. But regardless, they recalled 98,000 of them. What was it? Like the dashboard was too stiff? I think so. So they replaced the dashboard. I don't know. Did they, they develop they like some sort of some soft sort of like touch? Foam? Yeah, exactly. Like they, they put a little sticker on it. It's the pipe, uh, <laughs> the pipe insulation. They just put all over yeah, the dashboard. The, 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 flo- the pool floating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the pool floating. There right you along, go. That's along exactly along the what they did. Or they just put a sticker on it that says, please wear your seatbelt or your head will turn into uh, applesauce. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, the sticker method. Yeah. You know that works. Uh, in 2010 then, a faulty power steering system led to the recall of an additional 1.3 million cars. Power steering, oops, there it went. No, just don't have any. Uh, but what will make the Cobalt live in infamy is the faulty ignition switch. Mm. Okay. You see, the Cobalt's ignition switch was faulty in two ways. Was the floor mat bad? No. Okay, that just was checking. Not, that was not this. Okay, I'm just checking. Not on intended acceleration. This one's actually worse. Yeah, all right. Okay. Ignition switch is bad in two ways. It did not meet the torque or vibration requirements, which I didn't realize was actually a requirement, outlined by the NHTSA. I'm guessing there's all kinds of things that oh. lead to this. Like, what happened that made them have to have torque requirements on the stupid key? Right. Well, or, let me tell you, because oh, okay. this all is right. exactly why. So, first of all, the requirement is 10 to 20 newton centimeters. What the hell is a newton centimeter? It's just a little bit. It's like a like an inch pound. Okay, so that's to do what? To turn the key. Okay, so you need there's this. There's a requirement to turn the key. So you need this much force to be able to turn the key, and they needed as small as possible for the 15-year-old, 16-year-old girls that were driving these things. You couldn't have it be Well, that's 50 probably what newton Chevy centimeters. thought, because it wasn't enough. Right. So what happened was, while a person was driving down the freeway or anywhere else, either vibration on the road or simply too heavy of a keychain... Go back to uh-huh. your 17-year-old yes. girl. 50,000 things hanging on the keychain and the would furry. Would cause the key to go to the off position while you're driving. Now, it turns out you know that you can this just turn is the key a bit. bad thing. Ooh, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're driving along at, say, 60 miles an hour, the ignition switch turns off, you lose power brakes. Ooh, that's bad. Yeah, I knew you'd like that one. You can just keep playing it as much yeah, as you no want problem. as we go. Uh, you lose power brakes. You lose power steering, among other things. Yep. But that would be okay, except for the fact that you can't steer at all. You since lo- the steering column locks when the key goes into the off position. No, it doesn't. It goes off when you take the key out. Mm. That's when the key locks. You might be right about yeah, that. Yeah. But I can tell you and one thing. And you also thing. don't lose power brakes as long as the engine is turning. Because that's a run by vacuum, and you're going to have vacuum no matter what. So no, I think you're, you're not, because that's a torque converter. So your engine is just going to turn off. It doesn't have any RPMs. Oh, you guess, I guess you're right. It's you're an automatic. Right. Yeah, you know, I, if yeah, it's a manual, if then you would. Yeah, you're right. So you're right about that. Um, but that doesn't even get to the crux of what the issue here was. The Cobalt's airbags were designed to deploy only when the ignition was set to the run position. Ooh, that's bad. Yes, it is. <laughs> 
So here's the worst part, which is apparently a theme of this episode. GM knew about the defective part as early as 2004, but decided that it simply would be too expensive to fix. Actuarial table. When GM did decide to address the issue in 2006, they did it in a super shady way. Listen to this, Chris. The part designed to replace the defective part intentionally carried the exact same serial number as the old part, effectively covering the problem up. Ooh, that's bad. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. After nine years and 13 deaths, GM was finally forced to issue a recall of 2.6 million cobalts and, of course, the identical Pontiac G5. But the story doesn't end there. Facing a $10 billion civil suit that could bring the automaker to its knees, GM's lawyers were shysty as lawyers are. Mm -hmm. They argued that these deadly cars were manufactured by the old GM. The one that went bankrupt oh, in 2009, Chris, Holy before the bailout. That wasn't GM. That was old GM. Yeah, that was General Motors, not Government Motors. Exactly. It's Government Motors yeah. now. Therefore, Actually, obviously, you're suing yourself because yes. basically the no, government owns was the, the old company, Chris. Got it. Got it. So therefore, the new restructured corporations certainly shouldn't be held responsible for the matter. On September 17th, 2015, as part of the Deferred Prosecution Agreement, GM agreed to forfeit $900 million to the United States, but did not have to have the $10, $10 billion civil suit applied to them. GM gave $600 million of that $900 million in compensation to surviving victims of accidents caused by faulty ignition switches. What kind of, what is the most injury that you would sustain to get $10 million? Mm -hmm. Oh, you're serious saying like, well, what would I personally what would you be deal willing with? to yeah. endure? What's the maximum you would deal with mm -hmm. for the rest of your life? Like maybe blind in one eye for no, $10 million? I like my eyes. I, maybe one eye? Like I, I could lose a few fingers, it'd be fine. Yeah, like lose your pinky finger for $10 million? Oh, that, I'd All easily day. do that, yeah, right? I, I'll, Toes. Cut I'll, I'll, I'll cut it off right now. Let's do it. <laughs> Wait, oh crap, this was hypothetical. <laughs> So that is part two, three of the probably kind of more morbid of yeah, this the a, vehicle scandals. Yeah, there's probably, if you want to go back in the archives, there's some pretty cheerful episodes. <laughs> and now on to something more yeah, happy. leave us a review, subscribe oh, to the there podcast. You go. Yeah, that'll make you feel good. <laughs> go leave a positive review on the podcast. You know, doing, doing this nice episode's things. good, but man, I'm feeling depressed afterward. This, it always feels nice to do good things for others. Go leave us a review. Leave us a <laughs> five-star review. I subscribe like to the podcast. We will see you guys on Friday. Take care.
Oh, 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 oh,